Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, happy new year. Welcome back to the 2019 edition of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practice-led. We're rolling into episode number two here with another fantastic guest all the way from down under. Australia's Lachlan Mitchell sits down to talk all about the latest research in competitive bodybuilding. In this episode, Lachlan will discuss his research on the nutritional intakes of competitive male bodybuilders, carbohydrate intake differences between the US, UK, and Australia, as well as the use of refeed strategies and the state of the evidence on this front. He'll also talk about whether it's possible to build lean muscle and get leaner at the same time, the impact of constantly weight cutting and getting leaner on resting metabolic rate, and of course how your hormones and hunger hormones are impacted during that cutting phase. He'll also talk about the important topic of muscle dysmorphia, peak week weight cutting strategies, and much, much more. Terrific information-packed interview here uh, and evidence-based insights from Lachlan to help inform your practice. I hope you enjoy. You can check out the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast for the research papers discussed as well in this episode. If you're interested in more on this topic, then definitely circle back to Season 2, Episode 34 with Dr. Andrew Chappelle on Nutritional Strategies for Elite Bodybuilders, and Season 2, Episode 7 with Dr. Eric Helms on Nutrition for Bodybuilders and Hypertrophy. Beauty, remember you can check out all these experts and more on YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite pod-catching platform. Make sure you subscribe because you don't want to miss any of the action and the phenomenal guests teed up here for 2019. Again, if you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining in. You can get caught up on last season, probably the best way by checking out Season 2, Episode 50, our long-form Best of 2018 edition of the podcast, with highlights from a collection of last season's world-class guests. And if you enjoy it, feel free to binge listen to the rest of Season 2. Fantastic one last note. Again, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share Lachlan's fantastic insights with your community. Send out a tweet, share on Facebook, add to your Instagram story or email to a friend. All right, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest mineral-rich ocean water. Collected above phytoplankton-rich natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sport drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Use the promo code BUBS10, B-U-B-B-S-10 at checkout and save 10% at totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, it's go time. Season 3, Episode 2. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Lachlan Mitchell, a dietitian and exercise scientist in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at the University of Sydney. His research focuses on the physiological impact of body composition change through manipulation of nutrition and exercise variables. Lachlan, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks very much, Mark. I'm excited to be here. I've uh, actually been listening to a few of the previous episodes and really enjoying what you're doing, allowing researchers to get their work out to a broader audience. So thanks very much for the invitation. Awesome, Lachlan. Well, yeah, that's definitely the name of the game and really appreciative of you coming on the show here today because I'm definitely looking forward to talking hypertrophy physique and bodybuilding here, but before we get rolling, maybe you can give listeners a little bit more about your background and your journey to uh, your role at University of Sydney. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I guess like most researchers in this field, I 
played a lot of sport growing up, um, a lot of different sports, track and field, uh, summer sports, but rugby union was the, the main sport that I ended up dedicating a lot of time to and I got to the end of high school and needed to decide what I wanted to do and as I said, I really liked exercise, so I thought it was natural to progress into that exercise, physiology, exercise and sports science field. Uh, I also really enjoy food, so I thought why not add in some nutrition and dietetics as well. So uh, that's how I got into uh, exercise science and nutrition and dietetics. And once I graduated, I ended up working in a number of different places um, in a clinical setting as a dietitian. And although it was rewarding, I, I quickly found that it wasn't really exactly what I wanted to be doing working in a hospital um, as a dietitian. So sort of journeyed abroad a little bit and uh, lived in Ireland for a little while playing rugby and working as a dietitian with athletes over there and then went over to Canada and, and worked in uh, worked in another fitness area with uh, other athletes in particular, but also the general population, both as, both as a dietitian and as an exercise scientist. Uh, over the, the course of a, a number of years doing that type of stuff, I was exposed to the academic environment and I did enjoy that. And I always had this urge that I wanted to, to learn a little bit more and um, uh, I guess pursue research. So that turned me to where I'm at at the moment at the University of Sydney, uh, where I, I teed up with Dr. Helen O'Connor, who was my supervisor throughout my PhD. Um, so that's, I guess, how we got there. In terms of this research in, in the bodybuilders that we got into, uh, Helen and, and another supervisor of mine, Dr. Gary Slater, up on the Sunshine Coast, they basically, they're, they're both pretty big sports dietitians here in Australia, and they identified, I guess, the increasing popularity of bodybuilding here in Australia. And as sports dietitians, there wasn't a whole lot of information out there for sports dietitians in terms of what bodybuilders are doing and certainly nutrition is very important for, for bodybuilders. So they applied for a grant just to basically try and identify the things that bodybuilders are doing. And then with the idea of, I guess, educating dietitians out there so they can be a little bit more informed when, when they do see uh, bodybuilders, try and give them a little bit more advice, evidence-based advice based on what we're trying to find and, and evidence that's out there. Absolutely. And it's uh, fascinating stuff in the sense of a lot of the lore around bodybuilding, some of these things have come around to be proven to be true in the, in the science, um, in the research world. And of course, some of the things are more sort of myth and, and, and lore than they are actually steeped in evidence. So really excited here to dive into your recent paper, uh, Preparing for Natural Male Bodybuilding Competitions. So maybe you can set the stage here and let us know, you know who were the study participants and you know, how long was the prep phase that these bodybuilders are typically enduring? Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, we were examining natural bodybuilders, so I think it's important just to identify that they were drug-free bodybuilders competing in drug-tested competitions. Uh, so they were male bodybuilders, experienced bodybuilders. They had participated in at least one competition prior to uh, this competition that they were prepping for, and, and we recruited them over the course of a few years. We recruited these bodybuilders during their preparatory phase for a, uh, a competition. So we followed them for a, a five-month period, the first measurement time point they came in four months prior to their primary show so a lot of these guys were competing in multiple shows during a season so uh, provincial shows leading up to a national competition uh, so we targeted their primary competition which was typically a national or even an international competition for a couple of the bodybuilders and as I said we got them in four months out from from that show uh, some of them were starting their what we would call their in-season phase where they start to manipulate their diet to lose fat mass at that 16-week mark, others had, had already started that in-season cutting period. Um, and as I said, we followed them for five months. So the four months leading up to competition, we had them in a few times. So four months out, two months out, and then the week before competition. And then we got them in again four weeks after the competition just to see how they're recovering, how their diet and physique is changing after the competition. Uh, so in terms of the preparatory phase, as I said, we followed them for four months. Some of them were starting there in-season at that four-month mark. Others had started a little bit earlier, and there was a bit of variability with that. One of the participants actually started about 39 weeks out from competition, wow. whereas others were starting at that 16-week mark. So certainly a bit of variability there, and I think that somewhat reflects the results that we found uh, in terms of what measures we took. We looked at body composition, DEXA scanning. Uh, we did bioelectrical impedance to look at total body water, um, anthropometry, so just surface anthropometry there, and then resting metabolic rate. We took some blood samples to look at hormone levels. And then we took about a couple of other measures that we haven't actually published yet. So gut, took, we collected some stool samples that we're looking at at the moment for, for gut microbiota, as well as some psychology measurements. Yeah. And so, you know, if we talk about that prep phase in terms of the, 
when you first started observing the, the bodybuilders 16 weeks out in terms of the guys who were presenting perhaps leaner than some other athletes were? Was there any differences there in terms of how it all played out in the end? Uh, not really. I, um, we had a small sample size, which was a little bit disappointing. They were actually, it was quite difficult to recruit from this population. We thought we'd be having guys running through the door, knocking the door down to get involved, but unfortunately it didn't work out that way. I guess that's research. Uh, so we, we had nine bodybuilders complete the study, and uh, I think four of them had started their dieting before the 16-week mark. And when we looked at the changes over that 16-week period, there wasn't really any identifiable difference between those who were already dieting and those starting at the 16-week mark. Uh, some of them ended up losing a little bit more lean mass, but then there were others that ended up gaining lean mass in that 16-week period. And, and that's talking specifically the guys who were already a little bit leaner uh, coming into the contest prep, or at least our, our uh, assessment period. Um, I guess generally speaking, and this is what the evidence would suggest, not just in bodybuilders, but other population groups, those who are a little bit leaner when they're coming in do tend to lose a lower percentage of fat mass of their overall overall body mass that they lose. For sure. But as I said, there were some that actually ended up gaining some lean mass in that 16-week period. Um, if, if we looked at the, the dietary data, uh, possibly things like a less aggressive approach to their, their weight loss, given that they're already quite lean, they don't really need to go into such a, an aggressive energy deficit in order to achieve a very low percentage body fat. So potentially that lower energy deficit meant they're less prone to reductions in lean mass uh, as opposed to guys who are you know, looking to lose five or six kilos in a 16-week in a period, probably going to increase their aerobic work to try and increase energy expenditure, but also reduce their energy intake to a greater degree in order to produce a larger energy deficit and hence lose more fat mass. Unfortunately, uh, a side effect of that is there's probably going to be a greater proportion of lean mass lost. Yeah, that's definitely something that um, had Dr. Eric Helms on last year, and he commented that you know, many of the elite bodybuilders are using much longer prep periods now, you know, up to sort of 26 weeks, which you know, half a year is definitely a commitment. And of course, that, as you mentioned, helping to minimize the lean, uh, you know, losses in lean mass. Um, in your opinion, you know, from a 16-week prep to a 26-week prep, is that really just based on an athlete's competitive schedule, maybe how elite they are, training age, or even personal preference? Or what factors are at play there? Uh, I, I think it's a lot of different things. A lot of it would come down to their, their training age and experience. Some of the guys were quite experienced that we that we had coming in here. And I think those guys who are more experienced typically know what works well for them. They've probably tried a lot of different strategies over the years and they've come to a point where they can understand what works best for them. Uh, also, a lot of these guys had coaches and, and they're very much driven by what the coaches are suggesting that they do. Uh, so some coaches do have this approach whereby they, they suggest a longer competition preparation time under the guise that that potentially will limit loss of lean mass. Uh, I think there are other things involved as well. 26 weeks, as you said, you know, that's half a year to be focusing on, on cutting down and reducing fat mass. It is quite psych psychologically stressful um, to stay committed for that long period of time. Some individuals just can't handle that type of long preparation phase and then they need to be cutting it down to say a four, four months, so 16 weeks, even a 12 week preparation phase. So yeah, there are a number of different factors involved there. Some individuals, some bodybuilders tend to not put on so much fat mass in their off season. And they use that strategically because they feel if they don't put on as much fat mass, then obviously they don't, they don't need to lose as much fat mass when they go back into their cutting period. Therefore, they don't need to be cutting for such a long period of time. Whereas other bodybuilders, they tend to inflate. They really blow out a little bit, particularly in the sort of the four to 12 weeks after a competition. And then any fat mass that they gain, if they look to compete again, they need to lose that fat mass. So I think there, there are some pretty key points there that determine the type of duration of an in-season preparation. Uh, as I did mention before, a few of these guys are competing multiple times in their in-season period. So, you know, if you're looking at competing at a local show and then a provincial show and then the nationals, that may be, say, a four-week period where they're looking to be peaking. Um, and if you're going to be doing that at this sort of peak week preparation a number of times, then you need to factor that into your total in-season duration. So that may end up meaning you, you push back from that primary national competition, you, you're extending a 16-week prep out to a 20-week or even a 22-week preparation in order to be looking good for your first show, but obviously looking your best at that international or national competition where you're, you're really looking to, to be at that peak status. 
Yeah, it's definitely um, a bit of the art of the practice, I imagine, with, with timing all of that and getting that down in terms of um, the build-up to it. And, of course, at the outset of your study, like a lot of folks, you'd expect to see a, a loss of lean mass in some of these groups, but they were actually quite quite good at keeping the lean mass on, which is perhaps not surprising among elite bodybuilders. So is that a function of, of the protein intake in the group, or what other contributing factors were supporting that? Yeah, I think... Uh, there aren't too many studies out there in bodybuilders at the moment. There are a few case studies which have come out in the last few years, and they certainly would suggest that uh, overall the, the portion of mass lost, there, there is a significant portion of lean mass, and some of those those numbers vary you know, up to, to four or five kilograms of lean mass lost, you know, nine to 10 kilogram total body mass loss, which isn't ideal at all given bodybuilders are not just, they're, they're judged not just on their, how lean they are, but also how muscular they are. Um, I think... Certainly, the protein intake is one of the key components. We know from other research that when you're in an energy deficit, trying to increase your protein intake to, to a higher threshold does seem to, uh, I guess, ameliorate any potential loss of lean mass. Uh, what numbers they should be looking at, there's a bit of variability out there. I know Eric Helms has published a paper which is suggesting something along the lines of 3.2 grams per kilogram of lean mass uh, something along those lines, which is when you look at total body mass, it's about 2.6 grams per kilogram of total body mass. Um, that's just from observational data. There's no, as far as I'm aware, I don't, there's no randomized controlled trial, at least with, with bodybuilding athletes, that's looked at different protein prescriptions to see how that affects uh, loss of lean mass. But certainly the evidence would show that when you're in that energy deficit, particularly along a prolonged energy deficit, that maintaining protein intake at a higher a higher level does help reduce the loss of lean mass or at least uh, prevent excessive loss of lean mass. I think with, with the bodybuilders we had, when you look at the numbers, they, over that 16-week period, they didn't actually lose a whole lot of weight, um, both body mass but also fat mass. On average, it was about a three and a half kilo loss of fat mass. So that says really they're already quite lean at that 16-week 16, uh, 16 mark prior to competition, which sure. probably reflects how they approach their, their competition in, I guess, from a long-term approach, they're trying to prevent excessive gains in fat mass, thereby they don't need to lose as much fat mass as I suggested before. So coming in fairly lean already means they don't need to lose as much fat mass, which means they don't need to go into such a significant energy deficit. And then you couple that with that higher protein intake, it does seem to be uh, very helpful in preventing the loss of lean mass. On average, these guys were consuming about three grams per kilogram of body weight, of, so three grams of protein per kilogram per kilogram of body weight. Uh, and that would uh, meet the recommendations based on previous research, but also that Eric Helms, what he's recommending with uh, based on lean body mass. So I think based on our lean body mass through DEXA scanning, they're, they're coming in about 3.5, 3.6 grams of protein per kilogram of lean body mass on average, these participants that we had. So I think certainly that higher protein intake was be very beneficial in uh, preventing a loss of lean mass in these guys. When you compare it to those case studies that have been published, uh, those case studies, the participants are coming in at a much higher percentage body fat, which therefore means they need to lose a lot more fat mass. And, uh, all the evidence would suggest that when you need to lose a lot of weight, when you need to lose a lot of fat mass and you're quite aggressive with your, with your energy deficit, then inevitably there's going to be some loss of lean mass. And that's what those case studies would reflect. And I think that is reflected by the data that we've collected here. Yeah, 100%. And it's uh, interesting that you noted as well that some of your uh, bodybuilders were able to actually build muscle whilst also getting leaner, which is something that's you know, common, the common heuristic of either building or cutting. So can you comment a little bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think both from a research standpoint, but also my personal experience as a, as a practitioner, that there is this idea that you know, you're either building muscle or you're losing fat. You're not doing both of them. But my experiences would say that, well, no, actually you can. And, and I think a lot of people would find this as well, that you actually you can build muscle and lose fat at the same time. Certainly these bodybuilders were able to do that, at least a, a, a minority of these bodybuilders were, were able to do that. And remember, these guys are already quite lean, and these guys typically have a lot of resistance training experience. So we're talking a number of years of, of training experience. Uh, one of the guys in particular, he who ended up um, finishing third at, at an international sort of the world titles, he came in and he's, he's in his early 40s now. He's got 20 or so years of, of bodybuilding experience, and he came in already fairly lean, 
the total mass lost was more or less all fat mass. And in fact, he gained lean mass in that 16-week period. So this is an individual who typically you wouldn't be expecting someone to do that given his training age and how lean he already is. Um, certainly his, his approach to, and, and others' approach to, to resistance training and their dietary approach is very regimented and it allows them to achieve that increase in lean mass whilst also reducing fat mass. Um, so certainly it can be done. How do you do it? Um, I think certainly that protein intake is very important. Uh, you, you can't neglect how important resistance training is as well. These guys are very strict with their training. They lift heavy, they lift often. You know, they periodize their training. So that certainly is important from a dietary standpoint, though, uh, trying to minimize, I guess, the energy deficit that they're in and also focusing a lot on their, their protein intake. Uh, and things that we talk about and they talk about and, and things that we educate clients on and athletes on is not just the overall to- pro- total protein intake, but also your distribution of protein, the quality of the protein. And, and these bodybuilders, they're very good at that type of stuff. And if it's from their own experience or listening to other bodybuilders or talking to, to dietitians or whatever it is, they, they're very in tune with what they need to be doing in order to achieve these types of outcomes. So their diet is very well prepared. Uh, you could say it's strict, it's regimented in that they eat very similar foods on a day-to-day basis, but it is very well planned out and it does allow them to achieve these types of outcomes whereby they can increase their lean mass in a you know in a 16 week period when they're looking to drop fat mass and ultimately it, it ends up they result in in this ideal physique for a competition a bodybuilding competition in that they're they're meeting the criteria for being very lean but they're also meeting that criteria for increased muscularity for for being in a muscular uh, body composition basically which ultimately is what bodybuilders are looking to do 100 percent, yeah i mean it's uh it is interesting that the you know, five to six meals per day is obviously just well entrenched and maximizing that that protein pacing effect through the day and ensuring they're getting enough total is, um, is something that just, like you said, whether it's through evidence-based practitioners or even just their colleagues, um, is definitely something that's sort of hammered in. One of the things that stood out to me was um, the difference. I had um, Dr. Andrew Chappelle on earlier um, this year, and he was in his study with the British bodybuilders. I think they were about five grams per kilogram of carbohydrates a day. Um, and I was noticing in your study, the, the Australian lifters were about, I think it was three grams per kg. Is that yeah. something you think that's maybe, is it is it cultural? I mean, I know Andrew had mentioned that in, in the USA, they had lower carbohydrate intakes as well. Is it something that has to do with, you know, today obviously more of a low-carb environment in the blogosphere? Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I don't know. I've actually been speaking to Andrew recently in the last couple of months, and we've been trying to tee some stuff up, and that was one of the things that he did bring up that over there in the UK, and he's a bodybuilder himself, and he's experienced it, that the the carbohydrate intake is a little bit higher than what we found here. I think uh, with these guys that we studied, but also another study where we where we spoke and interviewed with some experienced bodybuilders, their overall carbohydrate intake is is not really significant. You know, it's nowhere near an endurance athlete. It's not up towards that five or six gram per kilogram that Andrew was talking about. We, as you suggested, uh, we found that they were about a three gram per kilogram mark, but they were using their carbohydrates very strategically, particularly as they got closer and closer to competition. What I mean by that is they're periodizing it around their training. So a majority of their carbohydrate intake is is consumed pre and post their resistance training session. And a majority of the guys are, are lifting in the afternoon. If they're performing aerobic work, they're doing that in the morning. So they're, they're eating a fairly moderate or a low carbohydrate intake during the day. And then they get to their, their sort of afternoon meal where they're still having a high protein intake, but they're bumping up their carbohydrate intake there. And then they're going and lifting in the gym for an hour or so, a, a short time after that meal. And then again, they replenish their, their glycogen stores so they consume a higher carbohydrate meal after their resistance training session. And that's where a majority of their carbohydrates are coming in, those two meals, so around the training session. Um, and we know that they're trying to lose weight, so they're very conscious of their total energy intake. Obviously, if you if you bump your carbohydrate intake up, then that's going to result in increased energy intake if, it, if you're keeping everything else the same. So For they're sure. conscious of trying to, to moderate their energy intake and therefore moderate their carbohydrate intake and use the carbohydrates strategically to ensure that they are training at, at their most effective ways so they can maintain intensity and volume of their training sessions without really blowing out with their with their energy intake from a, a total daily energy intake perspective. So I you know I would suggest that's possibly a difference between here and, and what Andrew's finding over there in the UK. 
I can't talk into too much detail. I haven't looked at them in specifically, but certainly when you look at a total grams per kilogram body weight, there is that difference there. Um, I think you do need to put somewhat of an asterisk against the guys that we're looking at here because, as I said, we, we did expect to get a lot more bodybuilders coming through the door to participate, but we didn't. Potentially, the guys that are, are taking part in this research are going to be guys who are more evidence-based with their approach, guys, you know, bodybuilders out there who are possibly following you know, less evidence-based approaches, potentially they're the guys who aren't going to be looking to participate in research for whatever reason. But you know, the guys that we're measuring here, potentially not a reflection of the total bodybuilding population here in Australia, but certainly the guys who are experienced, the guys that we were involved with. And these guys, they train with other bodybuilders. They're in the gym. They, you know, they've got bodybuilder friends that they talk to. They're the guys that seem to be following this sort of periodized approach with their carbohydrate intake more evidence-based recommendations that they're using. And that sort of dovetails into my next question here. You mentioned sort of the strategic use, obviously, of carbohydrates you know, before sessions to ensure you know, being able to work out at a certain intensity and, of course, with recovery. But what about the refeed days in terms of having those bigger consumptions one or two days of the week? What did you find there with, uh, with your bodybuilders? Yeah, so that wasn't something, unfortunately, I really wish we would have been able to look at that in a little bit more detail. We did find that about half of the guys coming through were using refeed days in in the 16-week and 8-week measurement periods. So that that week, that peak week, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but certainly 8 weeks out and 16 weeks out, these guys were using these refeed strategies. So I guess for the listeners who aren't aware of that, a refeed day is they're, they're in a long-term energy deficit because they're trying to lose fat mass, but they strategically use one or two days a week where they bump their energy intake back up to more or less their off-season values, and they use carbohydrate primarily in order to do that. Um, they reported it was very beneficial. Unfortunately, we couldn't really look into specific details of how effective it was from a physiological standpoint, but um, they do report that they find it very effective in maintaining their loss of fat mass, so um, continuing fat mass loss, but also it's certainly a psychological thing for them. If anyone who's been on a diet before, you would probably understand that it can be quite demanding. Um, when you include a day where you're going to be looking forward to it because you get to eat a little bit more, then certainly that will help with uh, maintaining it and staying on your energy deficit, so the long-term weight loss approach. Um, so that's certainly, uh, a, I think it's a very important strategy that these guys were using and it's something that they found very effective. They also try and use it around strategically around some of their resistance training sessions. So when they do have a big day lifting, typically a lower body day, when they're going to be lifting heavy uh, lower limb stuff, they'll use a refeed day around that training session. So um, yeah, they talk about trying to increase glycogen stores and increase a little bit more energy intake, carbohydrate intake, so they can really train and lift heavy on those big resistance day sessions. So they use that in conjunction with that type of heavy lifting day. Now, some guys were doing it once a week. Other guys were doing it a couple of days a week. Do they do it two days in a row? Do you do it different days during the week? Um, there's a bit of variability there in what the guys were reporting doing. You know, some guys were strict Monday through Friday and then Saturday, Sunday, they were their two refeed days. Not that they were blowing out, but certainly they could relax a little bit more on those two refeed days over the weekend. Um, in terms of what the, does the evidence suggest, I don't think there is enough evidence at this point in time to say what the best approach is. But uh, certainly anecdotally from these bodybuilders, it's, it's very effective. And I think, I guess this is putting my clinician's hat on at the moment, you know, if, if an individual reports something working, then then go with it. If the, if there isn't evidence to show it just yet, then who cares if you know if they find it really effective and it's beneficial for them, then stick with it. Yeah, the psychology being such an important aspect. I mean, I like what you're saying there. In particular, when you're going 26 weeks, I mean, that's definitely. I would think this getting keeping the psychology on point would be such a huge, huge bonus and uh, really important in the success. So that's a great insight there and. And Lachlan, if we talk a little bit actually about the, the training, you guys also assess the training volume, um, particularly the aerobic training volume. So for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with, um, with, with bodybuilding and peaking for competition, I think aerobic training has kind of gotten a little bit of you know, less attention, let's say, as of late with the HIIT training and everything being so popular. Can you talk about the aerobic training volumes of these participants as they led up to peak week? Yeah, sure. Um, so again, there's a bit of variability here. So some of the guys swear by it, other guys, they, they just don't even care. They don't even touch aerobic training. So the idea is they're trying to increase their energy deficit uh, through diet, but also through exercise energy expenditure. So 
uh, you know, they, they perform aerobic training to more or less target excess energy expenditure as opposed to looking to incre increase aerobic capacity to that type of stuff. That's not really what they're interested in. Um, as I said, there's variability. Some of the guys were performing aerobic work. Other guys weren't performing any aerobic work. So if you look at over, over the nine participants, just an average measure, it doesn't really appear to be all that significant, the amount of aerobic work that they're doing. But if you look in a little bit more detail at an individual basis, some of them were performing a fairly high amount of aerobic work, so three to four sessions a week of you know, 30 to 45 minutes of aerobic work. The work that they're doing does vary as well. Some of them still have this idea that if they go above a certain heart rate, then they're going to start burning muscle mass, so you just got to stay in that low steady state, low intensity steady state work, which typically means just going for a walk around the block for 30, 40 minutes. Others, they're more thinking, well, if I can perform really high intensity work, I can do. I can perform a shorter duration session. I can really uh, increase my metabolism and burn off a lot of energy, and that's going to have a greater effect in the long run. Um, so some of them were performing interval training. Some of them used, I guess, interval work in the in a gym setting. So using more of a circuit style training with different resistance training exercises that could that they could do, and that's more focusing not on trying to maintain muscle mass, but more trying to burn off energy, basically. And yep. so there's a bit of variability there. As I said, some of the guys were just not doing any any aerobic work, and they say, diet is enough for me. I don't need to add in any aerobic work to uh, achieve that energy deficit. I could just do it all through diet. And I think that does reflect the broader bodybuilding community. There are certainly some guys who don't do any aerobic work, and then there are some guys that really focus a lot on aerobic work, particularly as they get in that sort of four to eight week period before the show where they really need to start dialing in and, and burning off that last little bit of fat mass, they'll ramp up their aerobic work. Uh, I think there is this uh, concern amongst bodybuilders and it's probably somewhat valid in that the more aerobic work you're doing, then there is this potential that you're going to be losing a little bit more lean mass. Um, yep. And I think that's where trying to be, again, strategic with your diet, so using carbohydrates strategically and making sure you're uh, consuming enough protein uh, will allow you to achieve that fat loss without going too much into the into the muscle mass. Um, but certainly, as I said, there's there's variability there, and in, in the in the different competitors as to their approach to aerobic training, if they do aerobic training at all, like what types they do. As I said, some of them are low steady state, others are doing interval work, walking around the block, jumping on a, an elliptical or, or a bike, or or going for doing sprints, for example. There's a lot of variability there. I imagine a personal preference probably comes into it, and as you mentioned before, probably the the coach they're working with and, and the, the different strategies they like to use probably gets influenced as well in terms of what they choose to do, right? Yeah, I think so. In particular, the personal preference is very important. Uh, you know, if you're not enjo enjoying it, then you're probably going to be less likely to do it. Certainly, the the coach does have a big influence on the competitors, particularly the less experienced ones. They're going to be very much guided by what the coach is recommending. Uh, unfortunately, there are some coaches out there who don't have, don't, I guess, have the experience and the training or the education to be providing the best advice. Uh, and in that situation, they're going to be very much guided by what their own opinions are in terms of whether or not aerobic training should be performed. And then obviously that will be reflected in what the, the athlete themselves are doing. Um, but yes, very much the coaches do play a large part in that. I think they're usually checking in with the coach every few weeks in terms of their, their body composition, both through potentially skin folds, but also just through physique, looking at, at photos, that type of stuff, through posing. And the coach just may say, okay, we need to lose a little bit more. We need to ramp it up a little bit. So let's add in some aerobic work or no, you're on track. I don't think we need to add in too much at this point in time. Terrific. And Lachlan, as the contest prep obviously gets closer and closer uh, in preparation to peak for the event, Obviously, energy stores are decreasing, so we typically see a reduction in resting metabolic rate. How was the RMR impacted in, in your bodybuilders? Yeah, this was a really interesting finding for us uh, in that there weren't really any findings. So there, was, there weren't really significant reductions in resting metabolic rate uh, over that 16-week period leading up to the competition. As you said, uh, when you start to get quite low in your, your body composition in terms of body fat percentage, then you would expect to see reductions in resting metabolic rate. Uh, we didn't find that. I think there's potentially a, a few different reasons and the maintenance of lean mass is probably the most important one there. So even though they were able to lose fat mass, they were successful in maintaining lean mass. And we know that as people would say, lean mass is more metabolically active than fat mass. So if they're able to maintain their muscle mass, then 
theoretically that would maintain their resting metabolic rate. They're also performing a lot of resistance training, and we know resistance training does increase metabolic rate, even you know, over a 24 to 48-hour period, their metabolic rate is going to be maintained, and they're performing four sessions a week, usually, of resistance training. So that obviously would, would bump up their metabolic rate for a, you know, for a fairly long period of time over that seven-day week period. Um, I think also our, our testing protocol may have affected that a little bit in that uh, we got them in eight weeks out from the show, and then we got them in again one week out from the show. And we know that they go through certain strategies in that week leading up to the, the competition, particularly dietary strategies where they increase their energy intake, which potentially would have an effect on resting metabolic rate. So I was hypothesizing that they would, in, in particular in that week before the show, we would see a significant reduction in resting metabolic rate compared to the previous measures. Uh, as I said, we found that it more or less stayed the same. Some of them went up a little bit, others dropped a little bit, others stayed the same in terms of the, the different participants. But from a, an average perspective, there was no significant change there. I think if we got them in a week beforehand, two weeks out from the show, prior to their peak week strategy, where they're going to be increasing their dietary intake, we potentially could have seen some reductions in resting metabolic rate. Um, hindsight, I guess you, you learn these types of things. But Overall, really, I think the high protein intake, which allowed them to maintain their their lean mass, um, the lower energy deficit, which allowed them to maintain their lean mass, the high resistance training protocol that they're following, I think they were the key factors which which prevented a reduction in resting metabolic rate in these guys. And ultimately, if you can maintain your resting metabolic rate, it means you, you don't need to reduce your energy intake as much in order to maintain an energy deficit, which means you can still lose fat mass without dropping your energy intake so much, which ultimately has this positive feedback mechanism whereby your resting metabolic rate isn't going to continue to reduce because you don't have to cut down as much in, in your energy intake and your energy expenditure as well doesn't need to increase so much. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely the ideal scenario. And do you think that would be different than maybe sort of recreational bodybuilders who aren't following maybe such an evidence-based approach or who aren't as perhaps tuned into their uh, to their training and what fits them best? Yeah, I, I certainly would think so. So guys who uh, potentially need to lose a lot more fat mass in that preparatory period, uh, likely going to be going through a more aggressive energy cut in order to lose that fat mass. And you probably would find, or I would expect to find some more significant reductions in resting metabolic rate. Again, if I refer to the, the couple of case studies that have been published, they found some pretty significant reductions in resting metabolic rate um, over that competition preparation period. Um, and that basically means you, you need to be reducing your energy intake more and more and more in order to lose fat mass the closer you get to the competition. So certainly, and that's not to suggest that those case studies, those guys weren't following evidence-based practice. I think just the total fat mass that they needed to lose was so much more than what the guys I was looking at was that ultimately they did end up losing more lean mass uh, they saw greater reductions in resting metabolic rate, whereas these guys didn't need to lose as much fat mass, didn't need to go into such an aggressive energy deficit, didn't reduce their lean mass so much, and therefore they were able to maintain their resting metabolic rate. More recreational athletes, more recreational bodybuilders, or even guys who aren't looking to compete, but certainly just to cut down for whatever reason to look a little bit better when they're strutting around on the beach, for example. Oh, and those guys yeah. who are... Yeah, that's right, coming up into summer here and the budgie smugglers. Okay. Certainly uh, those types of guys who are going to be using more aggressive cuts, I would dare say that they're going to be facing some some reductions in their resting metabolic rate. Definitely slow and steady seems to be the, the best way to go about it. Now, what about hormone levels, things like testosterone, IGF-1? How are they impacted in this study? Yeah, again, another interesting finding, certainly from previous evidence looking at uh, bodybuilders, but also uh, other other studies that have just looked just looked at uh, significant energy reductions, low energy availability, you see this significant reduction in certain hormones, and that's what we found here. Looking at testosterone, IGF one, those concentrations, you know, serum concentrations of those hormones did reduce over that sixteen week period. Uh, some of them dropped below the normal range, the reference range for testosterone and IGF one. So some of the participants did find that in that acute period leading up to the competition. And that, I, I would suggest that would reflect some degree of low energy availability. We weren't able to assess that directly because we couldn't measure exercise energy expenditure. So we can't absolutely say uh, with 100% with confidence that it was low energy availability, but certainly uh, the symptoms in terms of low hormone concentration and also what they're going through in previous evidence would suggest that there is some degree of low energy availability 
there. Yeah, that's right. Um, what was the effect on this? Well, we know that although those hormones reduced, they were still able to maintain their lean mass. Their resting metabolic rate didn't drop down significantly. So you could make an argument that in that acute period of time, short-term reduction in, in those anabolic hormones doesn't seem to have too much of a negative impact on physique, on body composition, on performance. And that's given this is a bodybuilding performance as opposed to other athletic performance. So certainly that acute period, if if the those anabolic hormones are reduced, doesn't seem to be too negative. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at prolonging that uh, low hormone concentration to a longer period of time, then I would suggest that there may be some negative implications associated with that. Potentially, you could start to lose uh, lean mass a little bit more, potentially reductions in resting metabolic rate. But uh, you know, for these guys, they're focusing on one day. They prepare for a long period of time. If, you know, if their testosterone levels drop below normal values for four weeks, um, and it means that they ultimately look good on stage, and then they can either reverse diet or they just start to increase their energy intake, their protein intake. Usually stays the same, but carbohydrate, fat, energy intake goes up after the competition. Sure then the hormone values foods. typically start to respond. Yeah, that's yeah. right, and, and and the hormones respond fairly well, and, and it goes back up to that normal range. You know that that acute period where you're below the normal range, or you you've got a low testosterone IGF one value, it doesn't seem to be too effective, and I guess negatively affect these outcomes for these guys, um, given that they're focusing purely on that one day where they get on stage. Yeah, it's a good note for a lot of practitioners uh, listening in as well, that idea of energy availability and seeing some of these lower testosterone numbers because I know sometimes clinicians can make big jumps in terms of assuming that they should get testosterone levels up. But as you mentioned here, this is sort of a natural response to the, the whole training process. And you know, when these guys get a chance to rest, recover, and get a little bit more to eat, they normalize quite quickly after that. Now, what about Lachlan, some of the hunger hormones? You know, anyone who has dieted knows pretty intense feelings of cravings, and I can't imagine the hunger for 26 weeks of, of dieting. Any changes in leptin in, in the group? Yeah, again, another interesting thing in that we're expecting to see pretty significant reductions in leptin given that they're reducing their fat mass, they're reducing their overall energy intake, but uh, the numbers show that they didn't really significantly reduce their, their leptin concentrations over that 16-week period. Uh, again, potentially, particularly that one week prior to competition where I was expecting to see the lowest concentrations, because they're using these peak week strategies, uh, theoretically, that could have an impact on, on their leptin values. Uh, so it, it was very surprising in that although they're, they've got all the signs that you would think would reduce leptin and that they're, in, they're reducing energy intake, they're reducing fat mass, you would expect to see these reductions in leptin concentration. But uh, we just didn't see that in these individuals. The reason for it, I, I could only really speculate, and it would be a, a very broad speculation, I think. Um, potentially, because it's only a small reduction in fat mass, there wasn't that significant reduction in, in leptin. Uh, they didn't drop below reference range. Um, they were quite low fat mass all in all. Um, but again, we, we just didn't see the significant reduction there. So I... Uh, it vexes me as to why we didn't see a, a reduction in, in leptin concentration. I would, if I had to, to put my finger on it, it probably would be because there wasn't a huge reduction in fat mass. Three and a half kilos in the grand scheme of things isn't a huge reduction in fat mass, although they are quite lean already. Yeah. Uh, potentially that is the reason why, but I, yeah, it, it, it was actually very surprising for me and for, for the other guys in the team that we didn't see a drop in leptin concentrations. We did want to look at ghrelin as well. Unfortunately, we we didn't have the funds to, to measure that one. It was a little bit more expensive to look at ghrelin specifically, which is a little bit disappointing because sure. I, I would expect ghrelin, ghrelin to be going up given that they're, again, reducing energy intake, their hunger values, hunger measures would start to go up and ghrelin would, would reflect that. Um, we've still got the bloods here. Maybe one day I'll, I'll, I'll find some money and I can look at it. <laughs> That's yeah, terrific. And, you know, as these guys lead up into the peak week, I know in talking to, um, to Andrew and Eric, you know, there's a lot of different strategies that get thrown in there in the last week around, whether it's water loading or carbohydrate loading or various uh, dehydration practices. You know, what did you see in, uh, in your group of athletes? Yeah, again, a lot of variability here. Some of the guys uh, followed peak week strategies, water loading, carb loading. Um, other guys didn't do any of that type of stuff. Uh, some of the guys, one guy in particular, started 
he was using herbal diuretics. Uh, they were all approved by by Assad by WADA. So there's, I guess, there's no risk of, of anything there. But um, a, a few different strategies used the water loading, whereby some of them were some of the guys were drinking large volumes of water. If you look at a seven day peak week, if you're competing on say a Saturday, you might start the the Saturday beforehand drinking 15, 16 liters of water a day, and then progressively wow. reducing that over say a, a four week period, a four day period rather. So by you know, the Thursday before the show, you're only drinking 500, 600 mils of water. And then the morning of the show, you're only having small sips of water with this idea that you're going to, um, by consuming such large volumes of water, you're going to continually excrete water. And then you progressively re- reduce your water intake and you're, you're tricking your kidneys into continuing to excrete fluid. Uh, and then the premise of that is you try and reduce body fluids in particular, what the bodybuilders talk about is this subcutaneous water, try and dry out. So yeah. you're looking, I guess, more vascular leaner. Um, there's no evidence to suggest that works from a physique standpoint. Um, there was a study that was performed down at the AIS looking at, uh, I think it was judo athletes, where they use a similar strategy to make weight. And uh, they actually found that there is this imbalance in water intake to water excretion, whereby you're excreting a little bit more fluid then you're consuming over that seven-day period. Um, so there is something there. Uh, you need to bear in mind that those athletes are trying to make weight. They're not physique athletes in that they're not being judged on their physique. Bodybuilders are judged purely on physique. So if you weigh you know, a kilo less than you did the day before, does that necess- doesn't necessarily mean you're going to look better on stage. Um, so definitely. Some of them were doing that that water loading strategy. Other others were also using carbohydrate loading in in a similar vein. In that they're looking to increase carbohydrate intake in the days leading up to to competition, under the idea of increasing glycogen stores and thereby increasing muscle volume, basically. So to look a, a little bit bigger in terms of muscular volume. Uh, certainly, some of the guys were doing that. Other guys reported it's just the same. It's just a week as as any other week. Um, the same type of approach that they were doing with their high protein intake, strategic intake of carbohydrate, under the idea that it's that they're not looking to change anything. And talking to the guys, interviewing guys in another study, uh, bodybuilders from another study, experienced bodybuilders, a lot of them have tried, particularly the really experienced guys, have tried these different strategies. And the consensus that I got from them was that it's just not worth All the, the risk. In, and what I mean by yeah, and what I mean by that is that you can put in 16 weeks of, of hard work and you look great the day before competition and then you've done something slightly wrong. Either it's, you know, you've started your water loading a day too early or a day too late. You've carbohydrate loaded a day too early, a day too late. And then you get up on stage and you just don't look good. And then it's really deflating for them. And then they go away and they, they say, oh, you know, damn, I, I didn't look good. Let's go, go to McDonald's or whatever it is. And they go and have a pizza. And then they get home, they look in the mirror and go, oh, holy, you know, look at me. I look look better than I've looked this whole time. And it's because they've got something slightly wrong. And, you know, the, the pizza, whatever it is they're eating, the, the carbohydrate content has bulked them out or whatever it may be. Uh, so they've more or less said, you know, it's the benefit is potentially there, but the risk of if it's done slightly wrong, you can put 16 weeks of hard work down the drain just by one wrong meal or, or a couple of days of the wrong thing. So they, a lot of those more experienced guys have just said, you know, it's not worth going to all that trouble. Yeah, the risk reward definitely seems to be uh, pretty skewed there. So especially if you've done 16 or 20, 24 weeks, I mean, to, to leave it to the last minute like that would definitely be a little too risky for me. And you mentioned yeah. something there around, uh, you know, just I know you've done some work in, in muscle dysmorphia. So obviously, you know, we're in an Instagram generation, social media um, there's all sorts of influencers now on, on Instagram, so folks posting pictures, hmm. you know, people following that type of advice, or even just comparing themselves to those folks. Um, so perhaps you could maybe define muscle dysmorphia for us if we shift gears here a little bit, um, and then we can, yeah, we can yeah, dive sure. into that side of things. Yeah, sure. So I, I was very fortunate during my PhD candidate to do a little bit of work with Dr. Stuart Murray, who's over at uh, San Francisco uh, University of California, San Francisco, who's a psychiatrist who's really a world expert in this area of muscle dysmorphia, uh, disordered eating in in males in particular. So muscle dysmorphia is, it's a psychological condition that's now recognized in the DSM-5. It's a a category of body dysmorphic disorder. So body dysmorphic disorder is typically this 
distorted self-perception about a, a certain part of, of one's body. So it, it could be your hair, it could be your nose, and, you, and it, it's this distorted perception by it. And inevitably, you, you focus on it and you try and manipulate it, you try and change it. Muscle dysmorphia is, is similar to that, but what they're focusing on is is their body in, in general. So in particular, their muscularity and to a degree, their, their leanness. So they have this distorted self-perception whereby they think they're really small. They've got low muscle. They, they perceive themselves to have low muscularity and therefore they have this pathological drive to increase muscularity. If you and I were to look at them, we would say these guys are very muscular. They're very lean. And um, so there's this distorted perception that they have similar to what you know, an anorexia nervosa patient would have, yep. but it's in the opposite direction. So anorexia is... You know, they see themselves as, as larger when they're actually quite small. Where these guys see themselves as small when they're actually quite muscular and large. Um, that's how they perceive themselves. I guess the behavioural and attitudinal symptoms of it is that they their their life is focused on trying to increase muscularity. That they're very strict and very regimented with their training pro programs. You know, they're lifting weights all the time. Their diet is purely focused on. Uh, increasing muscle mass, so very high protein intake, very strict with their carbohydrate and fat intake. Now, they're in the gym all the time. There have been reports of guys turning down well-paying jobs so they can get a job at a gym, which means they have more access to, to a gym to lift more frequently. Uh, they're turning down social invitations because they're concerned the restaurant that they're invited to won't have you know, the right macronutrient ratio available to them, things like that. So it's it's getting quite extreme with, and very pathological with some of the behaviours. Um, yeah, the research we did was very much descriptional with the bodybuilders um, based on what I've just explained about muscle dysmorphia. You could say, well, I mean, that's very much what bodybuilding is. It's you know, it's this strict approach to reducing fat mass, building muscle mass, and certainly some of the, the key components of bodybuilding preparation are some of those traits that you would expect to see in muscle dysmorphia. So uh, how do we differentiate a bodybuilder who's, who's healthy, who's just preparing for prep for a competition versus someone who's got this pathological drive uh, and it's very much it comes down to that behavioral approach to it and the attitude that they have is it pathological uh, in their approach are they able to just to take a step back do they view bodybuilding as just is it it's a means of of competing as an athlete of staying healthy or is it is it something that they do to try and achieve this physique because that's what they value they they have this they this self-perceived idea that their self-worth is very much based on their physique. Um, it's yeah. difficult to differentiate between the two, I think. Yeah, I and certainly the some of the symptoms in there a little bit for, at certain. Yeah, and certainly some of the comments that from reviewers with some of the papers we published is is very much that. Yeah, you know, how do you differentiate some of these symptoms that very much describe muscle dysmorphia, where they're very much the things that are valued in bodybuilding. Um, so I think it's a fine line, and, and certainly you can't just uh, provide a questionnaire expect to be able to diagnose someone with muscle, muscle dysmorphia. Certainly you may be able to identify uh, symptoms or behaviours that are associated with muscle dysmorphia, and that's what we were able to do with our research, You know, identify certain things that were correlated with muscle dysmorphia symptoms. Um, but very difficult, at least from, from me being a dietitian and exercise scientist, be able, to be able to diagnose someone and certainly identify someone who does have muscle dysmorphia. That's where you need to be working in collaboration with you know, with someone who's got that psychiatry background, who's able to perform one-on-one -on -one interviews and actually diagnose that type of stuff. But certainly there were some things that we did find were associated with, with symptoms of muscle dysmorphia, things like uh, how rapidly an individual is going to look to lose their fat mass for competition, so the rate of fat loss per week we, we found was correlated with symptoms of muscle dysmorphia. So this idea that yeah they they prize high muscularity but also leanness, and they're very aware that if they prolong their energy deficit, then that's going to have an effect on their muscularity. So if we can try and uh, reduce the duration of being in an energy deficit to tr to become lean, then that potentially will reduce how much muscle mass they're going to lose, and therefore they're going from very muscular to very lean in a short period of time. Um, that's specific to bodybuilders, but certainly that was something that we identified as a potential, or at least a correlation that obviously doesn't mean causation, but it's certainly something that was correlated with muscle dysmorphia symptoms. Things like bodybuilding experience, uh, we found that those who were less experienced tended to show more uh, symptoms 
You know, that could reflect a couple of things. It, it, it could be that guys who are potentially uh, at an increased risk of developing muscle dysmorphia are attracted to bodybuilding because they know that bodybuilding as a competitive sport will allow them to achieve those types of physiques. But uh, participating in bodybuilding, taking part in the types of practices that bodybuilders do doesn't alleviate any of those symptoms that they're experiencing and then they drop out so they don't continue on in the sport. Um, therefore, low experience and, and they're experiencing the symptoms. Uh, you could make the converse argument that actually bodybuilding can help manage symptoms, whereby if you if you uh, continue to participate in the sport over a number of years, your symptoms start to reduce. Um, potentially, that could be a, a factor there. Again, because it was correlational data, we can't make any causative assumptions, but that's a potential explanation for that type of thing. So certainly it's a very interesting area and, and there's more and more research coming out now, not just in bodybuilders, but in the broader population. As you suggested, and I would 100% agree with this, as social media becomes more and more prominent and everyone can access an Instagram account and become a, an online sensation, so to speak, and it's easy to manipulate photos and images to, to look a certain way. I think uh, certainly that the risk of muscle dysmorphia or muscle dysmorphia symptoms, disordered eating symptoms in males is probably going to become more prominent. And I think we'll start to see, particularly in that younger age group, you know, teenagers, early adults, that there is going to be some pathological behaviors developing, both in males and females. And I know uh, strong as the new sexy is certainly something that's branded about in, in the female uh, Instagram world. So For sure. I think there's going to be a risk of that type of behavior developing in females as well, whereas you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was this really stick thin model like was the ideal physique. Now it's becoming a bit more athletic and uh, it, you know, there's a potential for pathological behaviors to develop. And I think as, as practitioners, it's there is a fine line. We want to recommend exercise for people. We want, we want, to, re we want to recommend people eat healthy, you know, eat, eat a balanced diet, make sure they're getting enough protein, carbohydrate and whatnot. Um, so it's it's hard to uh, I guess, differentiate those that, you know, providing these healthy recommendations to taking it a step too far where it does become pathological. And I think uh, working closely with your athletes, working in a, a multidisciplinary environment where you do have other, if, if it's psychologists, psychiatrists in, in your team that you can work with does become very beneficial. Yes, it's, it's an important topic for sure. And definitely one that I think, as you mentioned, that could be more on the rise. So I think you've you laid out some really great, um, you know, some red flags that people can look out for and symptoms and whatnot. And as you mentioned, definitely um, getting that team approach and interdisciplinary approach is, is so key to all this. And Lachlan, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time here today. I want to respect your time. So last couple of questions here before we wrap up. If we circle back to all your research in, in bodybuilding, obviously, as more evidence-based research comes out, you know, these elite competitors are kind of mining every different field to get the next greatest gain. So you know, where do you think the next greatest gains are going to come from in the, in the sport of bodybuilding? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Mark. Um, I certainly think the bodybuilders, and it's like a lot of sports nutrition research, athletes have been doing a lot of this stuff for a long period of time, and then science tends to catch up and, and validates the things that they're doing. Um, I think from uh, bodybuilding research, a lot of the strategies that they're doing, well, not a lot, but there are strategies that they're doing that at this stage don't really have enough evidence, particularly those peak week strategies, uh, water loading, car loading. I think a lot of that stuff, if, if we're able to elucidate the effects there and if it does actually have a physiological effect, um, I think that's really important for us as a scientific community to be trying to approach and, and, and find out. Uh, I personally am really, really interested in this refeed day that these guys are doing. Um, I'd be, I'd really like to get involved with looking at that from both a, a physiological standpoint. Are there changes in resting metabolic rate? Are there changes in hormone concentrations? Uh, is it all psychological? Certainly, there's some evidence out there, not in bodybuilders, but in in uh, obese individuals and in in rat models, whereby you can go through this periodized, uh, not necessarily a refeed strategy, but certainly this sort of five-two strategy, intermittent fasting type thing, where they have shown that. You know, weight loss per unit for per kilojoule of energy deficit is a little bit more effective or is, is greater in that intermittent fasting approach. So I certainly think there's something there with this refeed day strategy that they're doing. And, and I think that would be a, a really great finding if, if a group were able to, to show that 
uh, this type of strategy that the bodybuilders are doing is beneficial because I think that has really broad-reaching recommendations because bodybuilders aren't the only athletes who need to lose weight, who, aren't, who, don't, who need to lose fat mass and maintain lean mass. There are a lot of other athletes that would be looking to do that. Absolutely. Uh, and it's not just athletes as well. You could, you could be easily translating these types of findings into more clinical populations, whether it's obesity, diabetes, that type of stuff. So certainly I think there's, there's certainly things there that could be looked at in a lot more detail and validated. Uh, the bodybuilders, are, I, I think they reach the pinnacle of body composition translation in that they become very lean and they be, remain very muscular. So I think a, a lot of the population could use some of the things that they do, or at least use some of that body composition change. They, they need to lose fat mass and they need to maintain or build muscle mass. So there are things that these guys are doing that certainly could be very beneficial for other athletes and for the broader community. So uh, that's where I think the research should go and, and I'd like to try and get there uh, and help out to try and achieve that type of thing because it's, it's really interesting. It's very eye-opening. Certainly, I've discovered some things which are very interesting stuff and would like to pursue that. Yeah, it definitely is fascinating stuff. And, and Lachlan, I really appreciate all the work that you've done and, of course, taking the time out today. You know, Where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your fantastic uh, work and research? Oh, yeah. So I'm on Twitter. I'm, I'm somewhat active on Twitter. Uh, I'm trying to build up my own Twitter sphere, I guess, if you will, of followers. Nice. So you can find me on there. I usually tweet about my own research and um, other people's research that I come across. Um, that I guess that's the main way that you can stay in contact. Uh, ResearchGate is where I, I put a lot of my papers on there as well. Fantastic. We'll definitely include uh, those links discussed and the papers that we uh, talk about here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Lachlan or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. And of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a minute, head over to YouTube, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting platform. Subscribe, leave us a comment. It's always greatly appreciated. Thanks again, everyone, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.